Welcome to Asset Yield, the podcast series of Kinsteller's Asset Solutions Sector, where we speak with principal investors, advisors, and funders in the world of non-performing and non-core assets of all classes, bringing you frontline market insights in real time. We're here this afternoon with Gustav Hultgren, who is the co-founder and partner of Laub Capital. Delighted you could join us. Gustav, where are you these days during our uh, various degrees of lockdown? Hey, Denise. Thanks for having me. I'm in Spain, uh, south of Spain. You know, all the things have been very crazy, of course, in Spain. Here in this region, we've been quite fortunate uh, relative to other regions in the country. From this week, they've started with a gradual reopen. Uh, that if everything works out, we should be in the new normal, as they call it, uh, yes. by, by 1st of July. It's looking better. <laughs> okay. Gustav, you and I have worked together for quite a number of years in various iterations. I think that you and I could fill a Rolodex together. <laughs> but maybe you could tell our audience a bit about your background and then kind of lead up to what you're doing these days with Laub Capital. Yeah, absolutely. I usually say that I'm a banker, which actually now I've been working more in, in the NPL industry than in the banking industry, but that, that's my origins, if you will. I left the financial industry and went to Ukraine, where I created a debt collection company in 2007. Then I exited that and joined a Swiss company called DDM, that is a pure financial investor in NPLs. Uh, across Central East Europe in 2013 as CEO. Uh, we took the company public and grew it quite substantially. And then I left DDM essentially to set up a Laub Capital together with a very old friend of mine called Tobias Tunander, who's also Swedish. And Tobias brings very relevant experience with him since his days within banking, where he was working with structured finance and then lately as part of the portfolio solutions group at KPMG, where he was head of debt advisory for about 10 years. We have been talking to a lot of investors, of course, in order to raise money, and the reception has been very good. And we're now ready and funded to start doing our first transactions in order to build our track record and continue expanding our funding from there. With your background, I mean, any banker who goes to Ukraine already has a very thick skin and has a, a great frontier feeling about this. So for sure, you're seeing some opportunities in Corona. It's, uh, it's no, not all down. No, of course not. We see this as a uh, quite a significant catalyst for on the supply side, of course, in the NPL market. I think it's important, though, to point out we're focusing on the entire Eastern and Central European market and not maybe Ukraine so specifically at this stage. I think it's clear for everybody that bank losses are going to mushroom on the back of Corona in most all countries. And uh, as I said, supply of non-performing loans for sale will certainly be in abundance in the coming periods. What is Laub's mandate? Uh, What kind of investments are you looking at? The mandate is pretty broad, so we can do anything that is, broadly speaking, distressed assets. And in Central Eastern Europe, I mean, actually, it's geared so that it's European mandate, but our core markets are clearly Central Eastern Europe, and that's where we focus. 
but also uh, we have a keen interest in the Mediterranean countries. So basically you could say Portugal to Greece, Greece to Estonia, if that makes sense. Wow, that's quite a geographical breadth. I think the importance of this here is our operational model, where we distinguish ourselves quite a lot from other investors that are fully integrated, meaning that they invest in portfolios and have their own workout. That means that you're marrying yourself to a market and you have to be basically a repeat buyer there to support your organization. But the operational model that we have, uh, where we act as pure investors, and we source the workout capacity locally means that we can have a very much larger encatchment area and work across multiple markets. And then on the portfolios that we do invest in, you sort of create an ecosystem for that singular investment. Otherwise, of course, it would be very difficult to build up a collection servicing capacity in all the markets that we're looking at. That, that would be a, a massive undertaking, of course. Sure, sure. You use the word collection, uh, which obviously ties back to NPL portfolios and your background, of course, in debt servicing. Are you focusing primarily on NPLs or are you diversifying your asset classes? For instance, would you look at corporate turnaround? Would you look at energy assets, uh, strict real estate, REOs, for instance? REOs, certainly. Corporate turnarounds is something that we, both me and Tobias, have have ample experience from. So it's certainly something that we could do. That said, of course, now in the beginning, given that we're a limited organization, I think we're, we're primarily interested in looking at portfolios of claims where we can you know, process this together with our workout partners or, or debt collection agencies that we operate together with. And are you agnostic about the portfolios? Must they be secured or are you also looking at unsecured? That doesn't matter for us. I think returns and safety in numbers, uh, meaning that we have solid possibilities to do accurate forecasting for the portfolios so that we in turn can go back and you know, evidence to our investors that we can deliver on the forecast that we present to them effectively. That's the very most important thing of everything here. I think given the volatility markets, you need to be able to show reliability and predictability in the business model that you operate. Otherwise, it's not the time for selling dreams uh, to people. Absolutely not, although we could use some these days. As a fellow traveler in Central and Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, we, we both have worked in the same region for quite a number of years. I think we can agree that post 2008 financial crisis portfolio business was coming to a sort of, a, I don't know if the word is closed, but it was contracting over the last few years. The markets in Central and Eastern Europe are intrinsically relatively shallow and Mm. the kind of the big portfolios had already been sold and we were coming down to sort of final portfolios. Is that something that you would agree with or do you see the market pre-corona? I think we call it BC and PC. (laughs) Uh, In BC, how did you see the market until February of 2020? No, of course. I think your analysis there pre-corona is very accurate. Of course, the large NPL levels that we saw in many markets had, of course, contracted quite significantly. As you say, there was a lot of 
sales going on. But I think here the importance is that for banks, it takes quite a while until you have a client who stops making payments regularly until the bank will terminate it and then initiate a process for selling this claim onwards. Many of the banks in Central Eastern Europe, you know, losses that effectively occurred, say, around 2010 weren't sold until five, six, seven years later. There's a couple of drivers why things will be different this time. The monitoring authorities in the different countries will be much faster to go in and start doing analysis. I don't think they will be as lenient as they were last time because the last thing that anyone wants at this point is for a crisis that is now happening in the real economy to also move into the financial industry. So I think that the banks will have a, you know, will be under the magnifying glass from the authorities and the regulators, uh, meaning that they will come to market and try to sell these portfolios much, much faster than they did in the last round. You raise a really good point there, uh, Gustav. I mean, there's a kind of dynamic or let's say tension between the regulators acting very quickly now. I think that uh, certainly we're seeing a lot more proactivity from the central banks and governments than we did in 2008, particularly with the spate of emergency measures that have been passed, enforcement, moratoria, payment deferrals, and so Mm. on. But on the other hand, as you correctly point out, lesson learned from 2008. In general, it takes some time for these losses to crystallize, wouldn't you say? They do, but it's also very tightly interlinked with the accounting treatment in the banks. And there, there's been quite a lot of regulatory change in the past years, where banks now are forced to account for predicted future losses already in their balance sheet on a, you know, from day one, effectively. And this, of course, means that for the banks, it becomes expensive to hold the NPLs on their books much earlier than it was in the past. Me and Tobias, we talk a lot about front book and back book issues here in the market. I think there's a couple of things here that we will have a front book, meaning new supply that the banks will come out and sell. That's just, it's going to increase tremendously. It will take a couple of months, of course, maybe a few quarters until that, that filters through. But it's coming and we see the banks already now are keeping a very close eye on credit losses. And there's a lot more focus from everybody because they knew how bad things turned in many markets after the financial crisis with banks stopped lending to businesses that sort of hampered economic growth, etc. The other thing that we have at the moment, which is an issue, is the back book. And that is for the investors that already have bought portfolios from banks, where I think if you put down a forecast for a portfolio in fourth quarter of 2019, and now all of a sudden you're having a quarter or maybe two or three quarters where you're actually not getting any of the income that you had projected for, that becomes a very big headache for many of these investors. And we see a lot of the listed entities are trading down significantly as well in the share prices. That's a very interesting point, the current asset management and how are your, what do I say, your colleagues, your competitors, your fellow travelers in the market, Mm. how are they managing their assets when they cannot enforce, when they can't collect, when there's basically, depending on the jurisdiction, a three to six to perhaps even nine month moratorium. Mm. What do you see happening there besides accounting management? 
The only really visible data that you have is, of course, the few listed companies uh, here in Europe and maybe in some other markets. And there, of course, the Q1 reporting is coming out now. Its elections are down, etc. On the other hand, we should not forget here that many of these companies, they had maybe a three-week impact from Corona in the Q1 results. In the second quarter, we're going to have a full quarter worth of Corona-adjusted collections, if you will, in mm -hmm. many markets, and it's going to look awful, bluntly speaking. Obviously, all of these companies will have to adjust their forecast, uh, you know, to the best of their ability. Uh, of course, they have very limited visibility, as everybody else knows when things will open up fully again, and what's the new normal and all of this. But I think that they will, of course, need to adjust the values on their the balance sheets. And this can hurt those companies. That's clear. Um, when it comes to the large multinational investment funds that we also see on our market that are very big investors. I mean, in Spain here, for example, where you have a couple of investors that have you know, invested billions of, of euros. There, it's less transparent given that they don't publicly report anything. Their strategies are also... I would say maybe co-joined with type of, of private equity approach where they buy entire banks, for example, and then they split out the NPLs in one bucket and the bank in something else where they have maybe an operational turnaround. They might be easier for them to manage this in certain aspects. But as I said, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on there. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned when you described Laub Capital, you are alluding to it when you discuss the big players in the market, the concept of diversification where they have multi-businesses. I'm very interested what's happening in the market right now and in many areas around the non-performing asset market. Your former colleagues, DDM, have just bought 10% of Adico Bank. One of the major players, I think we can say their names, uh, one of the major Polish-based, although across Central and Eastern Europe, Crook, have bought Wanga.com in Poland last year. So in a way, there is a certain uh, vertical integration. They're both doing the servicing, investing in the distressed assets and servicing them, but also originating. How do you view that whole market? And is this something that Laub would be looking to do as well? Not at this stage. I don't think that neither DDM nor Crook has communicated what the strategic intent of these investments are. Um, you know, there's obviously two things that come to mind. One, as you said, is that you can, you know, the Great. long way around... You can create uh, your own NPLs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is kind of a very unholy alliance, which I don't know how the, the regulators would look at that. But I know that there are people, you know, long further back in history that have created sort of non-bank entities for refinancing people that became non-performing debtors, if you will, uh, with various degrees of success. Um, I think the other thing maybe that this could be down the road is that they want to lean or use these banks to attract cheap funding, maybe. That's, of course, the other thing that might be obvious here. And I think that when it comes to using a bank as a funding vehicle, we've seen that with, uh, you know, we have Hoist in, in Sweden, for example, that is a big investor in NPLs, and they also have a banking license with, that they use for their funding. It's been a very good arbitrage on the funding side, uh, but it's also presenting quite a lot of challenges. A bank is quite expensive to run, so you need to have a pretty substantial 
business on the NPL side in order to support the running of a bank. The point you make is absolutely correct, that there's again a dynamic between uh, having this call it cheap funding, but also being under regulatory scrutiny and control. You may recall that one of the issues when uh, the get back scandal occurred in Poland, a hoist had some issues buying into the assets there exactly because of what you said, because of the regulatory scrutiny. It opens up quite a lot of questions here. I mean, we can discuss this for a very long time, but but I think that in the way that you're taking a pool of non-performing assets and you're repackaging this into something and putting on a new forecast or based on a new purchase price, and then you're treating an asset, basically a performing asset for the bank that you then can use for the funding. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. The regulators obviously accept this, but I know that in Germany, this has been been questioned by the regulators uh, when the banks have been doing this. Well, to be fair, it's to some extent the underpinning of the entire NPL securitization market, that and state guarantees. Another point that you raised that's very interesting is about the private equity approach. Looking at the market, again, as we said earlier, the, N- the, the pure NPL market in Central and Eastern Europe had started to contract somewhat in the last couple of years, simply because the product had been sold. And what we were seeing was a movement into a private equity turnaround approach. Some of the traditional big players, AOS, APS, B2, DDM, Intram, various other ones, you know, they have the infrastructure, they understand underwriting. So the issue then was, if we can do it for a portfolio, why not do it for single names as a private equity turnaround? Is this something that you've seen in the market? And is this something that you would be considering with Lau? We certainly have the expertise in order to do corporate turnarounds. What you said, I don't know if I fully agree with that. I know that there's been a lot of focus on on single names, but I think most of the efforts that are done with single names is a matter of recovering as much as you can from that loan. I don't know how many true uh, corporate turnarounds we've seen in the sense that you're looking to break something apart and then refine a component of that and sell it at a higher value. Most of the investors that we're looking at, certainly most of the ones that you mentioned, are investors that are looking at cash. They're not looking at, let's buy a bank, let's split out parts that are non-core, and then we can re-IPO this or something like this, which would be the, the pure private equity approach. The private equity type structuring is something that we like quite a lot. And I mean, that's also a, a significant difference with Laub in that we've chosen private equity type funding mechanism where we have drawdowns that we can make from the investor commitments. And this is very important as a differentiator I think in the business model on the funding side, as compared to being a listed company where you have to issue shares or take in share capital and then combine that with issuing bonds on the debt side of the financing. Of course, if you print the bond, you never know where the bond market is open, so you have to do it in advance. That means that you're, in a sense, bleeding bleeding interest (laughs) without Mm -hmm. without necessarily having the money invested and generating income on the other side, uh, which is certainly a challenge in that model. 
the loud structure that we've established for our investors, uh, we think that we will bleed out less money, if you will, meaning that we can return better returns back to our investors. Very interesting. Can you still maintain a certain nimbleness in the market without kind of a war chest? Absolutely. You need to evidence that you have funding, of course, when you go into the transactions. By and large, people don't or the selling sides don't have an issue with taking the commitments that you have from investors as proof of funding. Going back to one of your earlier comments as well, I very much enjoy that you opened with Ukraine because that part of the world has always been fascinating, yet somehow impenetrable. Since you have a very large geographic footprint, where did you see the key markets? What are we calling it before Corona? And where do you see the key markets post Corona? I think, unfortunately, it's so that the weaker economies will be more hit than the stronger economies. The countries that did a, a sterling job in the cleanup after the financial crisis will come out better or faster out of this crisis than certain other countries. Unfortunately, now we're talking about one of the countries in in Europe that will have the biggest impact will be Greece, and which is very unfortunate for the Greek economy, of course, given that they haven't managed to really empty their books out of the non-performing assets since the last crisis even. Same thing goes, of course, with Italy. I mean, on the other hand, we have some of the bright stars in, in the Eastern European or Central European markets, such as Slovenia or Czech Republic, Slovakia. They did their homework and they cleaned up very well after the last crisis. And there we will have relatively less problems. But that said, this is a crisis in the real economy that affects everybody, meaning that we will have soaring unemployment in basically all countries uh, across Europe. And that in itself will lead to credit losses and the unfortunate situation where, where people and companies are not able to meet their responsibilities. It's inevitable that we will have higher NPL ratios in basically all countries. The only question is how much they will rise in, in these different countries. I think there's also a big thing that happened, of course, after financial crisis, which varies from market to market, is that you know many of the multinational banks, I mean, they pulled out of some of the smaller countries, consolidated back to their home countries. We saw this with some of the UK banks, RBS, for example, that, that pulled back from many markets. We had uh, you know GE, of course, that became other banks in certain markets, but they're certainly not there as lenders anymore in the G capacity. There's numbers of of examples of this. In our neighborhood, of course, uh, the Greek banks have have retracted back to Greece. So they they were very active in Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania. So you're absolutely correct. But they still hold large portfolios of NPLs in many of these countries. You know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they, they, they haven't managed to sell these things, so they didn't want to sell them or I don't know what. But now, uh, now of course, they're not generating maybe new NPLs, but, yeah. but they're yeah. certainly, it's not helping, right? Uh, the, the, the equity goes, but the debt always outlives you. <laughs> That's always exactly. the case. Exactly. That's always That's the case. Point. Yes. You make an interesting observation about Greece and Italy. Of course, we all know that both Italy and Spain have been very hard hit by Corona from a medical perspective. And of course, that will have a knock-on effect on their economies. Interestingly, Greece has not been that hard hit 
and in fact was really emerging from its crisis quite solidly, helped very much by the entire uh, Hercules uh, state-guaranteed NPL uh, securitization program. And the fact that, you know, going back to one of your earlier comments, a lot of the big players, the diversified large players, were very interested in Greece because the portfolios were enormous. You have more or less the same resources, the same amount of labor, and you just get a lot more, as, as I say, bang for your buck. How do you see the whole business going forward in Italy and, and Greece, for instance, where so much of the momentum was because of the state guarantees? Will the state be able to support those guarantees now? And will investors give those guarantees the weight that they previously did? I think from the offset, I'm not banking on any of these countries you know, going into default, right? That's for one. Apart from that, I guess it's important here to put things in perspective. I think, as you said, Greece has is, is not been that hard hit from the coronavirus itself in terms of, I mean, people getting sick and, and dying and so. But the hit to the real economy is going to be massive. I mean, they will lose the entire holiday season of 2020, for one. There probably won't be any people there. Same thing for Croatia, Italy. I mean, even here in Spain, down here in Andalusia, we have uh, 95% of the economy is standing still, basically, which is terrible. If I can draw the parallel to the Spanish numbers, they're talking, according to the World Bank and the IFC, I mean, we're talking about an 8.5% drop in GDP for this year in Spain. So this is over a three-quarter period. And it's basically the same drop in GDP that Spain saw over a three-year period in the financial crisis. So the economy is hitting a brick wall very, very fast here, and it's going to be very painful. And then if they say that the GDP is going down even more in Greece, I don't even know what that translates into, but it's going to be terrible in the real economy. That's my prediction. I don't want to be a doomsbringer here, but I think that's no. just the reality. We're talking about a GDP drop here in Spain that hasn't been seen since the first year of the Civil War. In the UK, we're talking about a GDP drop for the year that is bigger than anything since they started measuring in what, if it was 1708. It's crazy numbers. I don't think we can understand how big the impact is. You've basically said that we're falling off a cliff all across Europe. I think the euro is now on a parity with the dollar, and I think sterling is not too far behind. You've said earlier as well that in contrast to 2008, financial regulators, the respective governments, are going to be quite responsive. Yeah. Uh, So everything's going to happen, in your view, quite quickly. Where's the money going to come from, the liquidity to make the investments? Who do you see as the investors besides Laub? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I mean, there's a lot of money out in parallel with this. And I think this might be the, the thing that is holding things up here. One is that this is not a financial crisis, so the banks actually don't have big problems yet. We see the big American banks taking the lead here with big credit loss reserves, et cetera. It's difficult to see where the money is going to come from. It was difficult to see where the money was going to come from before Corona. If we're talking non-performing exposures, which is a wider measurement uh, across Europe, uh, we had, I don't know what the latest number was, but say that it was about 800 billion euros. 
that's a lot, a lot, a lot of money. You know, if you compare that to the largest NPL-only fund that I know that has been raised, which was Cerebrus, which raised about $5 billion uh, about a year ago. I mean, if you put $5 billion in comparison to 800, it's not even a drop in the ocean. And that's pre-corona. So I really don't know where the money is going to come from. Coming back to the regulator's response here, I think it's important as well to take into account that you know, prior to the financial crisis, the regulators were so-and-so in monitoring the banks. And that's also something that led up to the fact that the financial crisis was allowed to hit so hard because the regulators were not on the ball quick enough. Since then, they've done a tremendous job in most countries, certainly across Europe, in building up monitoring systems. And, you know, they do asset quality reviews periodically and et cetera, et cetera, things that were not in place before the financial crisis. So there's sort of no, there's much less room for maneuver for the banks. If you have bad assets on your books, you have to address that problem. You cannot escape that fact or shuffle the board to make things look better. No more policies of extend and pretend. Is that what you're saying? Kind of. There's no finger pointing here towards anyone. But I think, I mean, we all know that some banks have always been better at this than other banks. And some countries have been monitoring this more precisely and and carefully than in in other countries, but I think the playing field or the discrepancies between different markets has certainly lessened a lot since the financial crisis. You've raised a lot of interesting points, and to go back to who the uh, potential investors are and where the liquidity will come from, we see some new players in the market. Interestingly, a lot of the traditional litigation funds, Burford, Delta, to name a few, are looking now at coming into the NPL market, which is not a stretch because they're basically funding enforcement of claims and what are NPLs, but enforceable receivables. Do you see this as an opportunity in a way for a lot of new players to come into the market and possibly into Central and Eastern Europe? I think so. The one thing that sort of is shielding our markets or the place where, where love wants to be, where, you know, we're not certainly not going to be doing, you know, 200 million euro transactions in the near future. We're more looking at, say, 20 million euros, maybe plus minus, mm-hmm. um, as some sort of sweet spot. But I think partially from our investors into Laub, we see that they are more and more focusing on things that do not have market exposure because they understand that for as if you're a pension fund somewhere, it's extremely time-consuming to sit and manage your own portfolios of individual stocks. Most of that is being outsourced in the alternative asset space where we broadly put the distressed assets in. This is something that is growing together with commercial real estate and the private equity or you know VC funds and things like this. There's a lot of money that will be coming from there and that's sort of where the end investors will sit. I think as you say, for the litigation funds, this is a, it's a neighboring uh, asset class, if you will. Of course, it's, uh, a lot of it is very legal, legal technical in the underwriting and the process of on the closing processes for the portfolios themselves, where they can contribute with a lot of expertise and we are closely collaborating together with one of these funds. They're very keen on, on moving into this space together with us, but they need 
also hand-holding because they don't know the markets. They don't know the technicalities of, of NPLs themselves, whereas they can provide us with a lot of input when it comes to the legal structuring and the reasoning about certain cases and, and processes. This must be a case of brilliant minds because I've been looking at this very carefully as well. And uh, we'll have to discuss this offline. And how do you see another, and maybe it's a non sequitur, but, or maybe it's just a natural progression. There's been a sort of a fits and starts development of technology around the non-performing market. I think right now we probably have a handful or even less, maybe two or three main players in the technology market. Uh, going back to your comment about Ukraine, uh, we, of course we have DebtX uh, based in the US and then we have mm. Debitos based in Germany. They cover Europe, but also DebtX mainly covers the United States. Do you see a kind of acceleration of that in your business following Corona? Yes and no. It's very applicable in certain segments uh, where you have, for example, single ticket type uh, NPLs that can quite easily be sold through a platform like that. We also have some of the very generic or plain vanilla type of credit card uh, receivable portfolios, for example. We know that in the UK and the US, I mean, most things are being sold through platforms where the banks typically arrange that themselves. We have that in some of the markets in Eastern Central Europe as well. But I think by and large, the processes need to be similar to the ones that we've seen before where the banks are, are going out with teasers and then you have non-binding rounds, binding rounds. I mean, these assets are quite labor-intensive when it comes to evaluating them and also structuring the, both the workout process but how the investment itself will be structured. And it's difficult to see how that's going to be squeezed into, you know, some kind of rapid trading uh, platforms. Maybe I'm wrong. As supplies, supply mounts, maybe they have to resort to that. But certainly when it comes to, to REOs, I mean, that kind of makes sense to do that through a platform rather than the process, I think. When it comes to technology in our industry, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI and a lot of it is, is on the servicer side and clearly they can achieve a lot of efficiencies by using you know smarter tools or smarter scoring models to know where they can extract uh, more value at lesser less effort from portfolios so that's certainly a very relevant point for them and for us obviously we will hopefully can take at least part of that in the form of lower commissions you basically see the portfolio business as remaining more or less a bespoke kind of M&A type of transactions, with the exception, of course, of maybe un unsecured consumer portfolios. If I understand, but the servicing you see as being facilitated and enhanced by technology. Very interesting. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, if you just look back, say, 10 years ago, uh, the process of doing a a desktop analysis of a mortgage portfolio, for example, evaluating uh, properties was quite a cumbersome work. I mean, now in, I would say most countries, these things are available in, in you know, kind of online platforms and you can do a lot of the tweaking work yourself. The same thing, of course, goes with electronic court systems that have been rolled out in, I would say, probably all countries now in, in Europe. Uh, yeah. There might be one or a few that are still not really there. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, all of these things are helping to drive down transaction costs. It's helping to speed things up. It reduces friction and, and things like this. Unfortunately, again, I think the countries that are lagging here have been Greece, Italy, Spain, you know, to a large extent that have not maybe, mm -hmm. you know, we see countries in Eastern Europe that have achieved much more development than some of these countries. That is an excellent point because I remember in 2014 and, and 13 when we were looking at portfolios in Spain versus portfolios in Hungary, and there seemed to be this residual fear of going east of Poland, even though enforcement and uh, recovery in Hungary was so much easier than it was in Spain at the time. There was an idée fixe. And I wonder, just some closing thoughts, uh, since we are very focused, both of us, on Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe, emerging markets tend to be the first to collapse and the last to recover, whether this isn't uh, one way that to attract investors, a selling point, uh, because, you know, relatively speaking, the markets are smaller, shallower, and less familiar to investors whether the, um, you know, the facilitation through technology might not be one of the ways that to attract investors to these markets. I think certainly so. It can only come back to some of these uh, countries. I mean, Slovenia, for example, or, or Czech Republic. I mean, small, nimble economies, of course, they have all big reliances on, on other countries as trading partners. So that's a driving force. But I think in terms of pushing through reforms and putting new systems or, or processes in place for the countries, it's, of course, much, much easier to do that in a country like Slovenia than it is to do that in Italy. Uh, that, that goes without saying. These countries have a very good chance here to be leaders coming out of these crises as compared to some of the larger economies where there's just that much more amount of cases that you need to process and it takes time. As we wrap up and look ahead to recovery, and, and I like that you said coming out of the crisis because that's where we're all looking ahead. Gustav, I'm pleased that you're very forward-looking and mentioned recovery in the context of your last comment. As we look forward, are there any thoughts you have for this period and for the future? It's, of course, a very broad question, but to maybe summarize a couple of the points that I mentioned, I think that the NPL space is certainly here to stay. I think we're going to see large volumes of new cases in what we call the front book. We also think that there's going to be a lot of portfolios in the secondary market coming out from existing investors. A lot of these things, considering the increased supply, is probably going to be helpful to increase the return uh, metrics also for the new investors. So I think we're in for a period here where we will see dramatically higher levels of supply, both in what we call the front book from the banks, but also in the back book from existing investors that are looking to sell out the portfolios that they own. Um, unfortunately, we're in for a very difficult period in the real economy in most of the European countries, uh, certainly the ones where we look at, while it's going to be to various degrees, of course firmly believe that, that MPLs is going to be a, a fantastic invest asset class to be invested in for the coming years or maybe decades. We can only wish that we can get the process started and the banks addressing this problem as soon as they can. Uh, we're already seeing some of the banks opening up small, smaller processes now to test the markets. 
And we know that there's a lot of banks that are preparing themselves for asset sales here over the coming uh, quarters. So um, we're looking forward to that. Gustav Hultgren, co-founder and partner of Lau Capital. Thank you so much for our discussion. Thank you very much, Denise, and thanks for having me.